Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll hear stories of food from around the region. A celebration of black chefs in Aspen. I mean, all things center around food. It's not just an opportunity for us to sustain ourselves physically, but it also nourishes us mentally, it nourishes us spiritually. The history of sugar beet farmers in northern Colorado. And after that summer, I told Mom I'd do anything but go back to the field. An indigenous farmer from the Navajo Nation. I want to grow foods that are cultivated for the climate that I come from and that are special to the nutritional needs of me as an indigenous person. And food rescue in Denver. This food that was slated for waste should not be governed any further and should be available to the people for the people. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. The food and wine classic in Aspen took place in June and it celebrated diverse flavours and the chefs behind them. From Aspen Public Radio, Kaya Williams reports from one pop-up dinner at the classic that put the spotlight on four award-winning black chefs. It's early evening, almost dinner time in a tent outside the St. Regis Hotel and celebrity chef Carla Hall is in awe of the hors d'oeuvres. We just had an oxtail hors d'oeuvre. What? On a homemade saltine cracker with some pickled red cabbage. Now you know that is something I had back in the day. And to have it so beautifully and elegantly presented for everyone to taste, is just incredible. Hall is one of the guests at tonight's dinner, which celebrates a rich history of black food culture that stretches from Africa to the Caribbean to the American South. Chef Kwame Onwachi combines flavors from all three regions at his New York City restaurant Tatiana. Gregory Gorday honors his Haitian heritage at Khan in Portland. Eric Williams and Damar Brown cook elevated Southern food at Virtue in Chicago. But the food and wine classic lineup in Aspen didn't always look this way. I mean, there were a couple years that I didn't come because I felt like there wasn't enough diversity. Because if I'm going to spend my time at a festival, I want to see people who look like me. The festival celebrates its 40th anniversary this year. And for most of those four decades, both here at the Classic and in the food industry at large, the focus was on just a few kinds of cuisine. We see Italian, we see French, we see Latin, but we've never seen much of the black culture or Caribbean. Tiffany Barriere from Atlanta is the mixologist tonight. We have such a story to tell always, and our story through food, the food ways, is it's so detailed, it's so spicy, it's so savory. And so to be able to be able to showcase our heritage, it's it's a dream come true. It's what we do every day at home. And so being able to share it with other cultures, our roots, it's divine. Those stories emerge in the flavors on tonight's menu, all paired with wines from a South African company called Aslina. Onwachi is making a plate called Hamachi Iskovich, putting Japanese fish into a traditionally Jamaican dish. Gorday is serving beef rib with a Haitian coffee rub plus creamed greens and a traditional rice and bean combination. Williams and Brown are on dessert. It's carrot cake, reminiscent of the kind Brown's mom served when he was growing up. Chef Gorday says this embrace of black food culture is long overdue. We're able to celebrate and share some of the stories that we haven't heard in quite some time via the 
uh, African diaspora via the Caribbean and, and, and even kind of stories that are happening in, in America proper. Gourdet made a career cooking French food, then pan-Asian cuisine before he started exploring his own heritage in the kitchen. This year, his Haitian restaurant Khan won a James Beard Award for Best New Restaurant. In fact, all four chefs at this pop-up have won James Beard Awards, widely considered the Oscars of the food world. There's triumphs in, in kind of uh, the recognition that we've gotten, but there's also the reality of we're still running restaurants and there's still lots of hardships. And uh, we are able to commiserate and celebrate each other and, you know, share the good and share the bad. There's a spirit of camaraderie and friendship among these chefs, but also a sense of responsibility, Gorday says. You know, we are, you know, leaders in our industry and we recognize that and we have the, the privilege of the platform that we are given and you know we want to take this opportunity and do the right thing and represent our cultures so you know we communicate quite a bit. Chef Eric Williams says this movement has been picking up speed for years. And it's it's not just black chefs we're saying Indian chefs we're saying Native American chefs Asian chefs I mean chefs from all colors races creeds are being pushed for and spotlighted at every chance. He appreciates how far things have come, but says there's still a lot of work to do. And it's gonna take all of us to continue to propel the industry if we want our industry to continue to thrive and be an industry for everyone. Right now, he's thinking a lot about the bigger picture too, in the context of Juneteenth. The holiday, which falls on June 19th, commemorates the emancipation of enslaved people in the United States. When we talk about Juneteenth, we think about not just freedom, but the conversation around freedom and communicating freedom. Williams says food plays a big role in that conversation. I mean, all things center around food. It's not just an opportunity for us to sustain ourselves physically, but it also nourishes us mentally, it nourishes us spiritually, and it's the fuel that we need when we have to go on and take on these tough fights. Likewise for drinks, at least at this event, one of Barrier's cocktails, called Jubilee, celebrates Juneteenth and what she describes as the joy of emancipation. From the Edless Neeson Arts and Culture Desk, I'm Kaya Williams. From Aspen to northern Colorado and the sugar beet fields, History Colorado is gathering stories of Latinos who toiled in those fields for a special oral history project. From Rocky Mountain PBS and Kuvo, Here's a report on a community story gathering event that took place on July 8th. So in this session, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about your experience working in the fields. You are the authors of your history. That's Yadira Solis, the director of the Museum of Memory at History Colorado. She was speaking to participants at a community event in Fort Collins on July 8th. Spread out, I remember the vastness of the, the fields. After we all finished, we chop them. There's a, a like a like a hook, mm -hmm. the beet knife. Yeah, and you grab it and then we just chop them. But we used to do it on a nail down there. When I would get tired, you would sit in the middle of those fields. Todo el tiempo I was either on my knees or bending over, and I would sit in the middle of the fields. And then I'm like, oh my God, it's so hot. The Museum of Memory initiative is essentially a public history initiative in which we are trying to expand our work statewide uh, to be able to capture stories from community members where the communities either have been marginalized, their stories have not been heard, 
or been untold. Uh, and so we are trying to expand a little bit more into those unique perspectives and going to community is the way that we do it. Here's Betty Aragon Mitotes, the founder of Mujeres de Colores, the partner nonprofit for these memory workshops. So back after World War I, when Im- European immigration was cut off, Great Western Sugar Factory turned to recruit the Hispanics. They came from Southern Colorado, New Mexico, and Mexico that they recruited to come and work in the sugar beet industry. These folks helped the sugar beet industry flourish. They helped the economy in Fort Collins flourish. So we're, we're part of the very fabric of Fort Collins. I went to work in the fields for a summer because I wanted money to buy clothes for high school. And after that summer, I told mom I'd do anything but go back to the field. We're standing in front of the monument, the ham that feeds, and we're in Sugar Beet Park. And back in the day, this was one of the beet fields. Straight to the back was the actual Sugar Beet factory. Okay, the short hoe is a representation of the power that farmers had because they liked people working with that short hoe, but they didn't understand or they didn't want to acknowledge that it was really affecting people's backs. So they sacrificed a lot of those people that worked in the fields when they're bending over doing the work. You know, we should honor that, you know, and so the reason that I have the short hoe up there is because we want to make sure that people understand the sacrifice that people did working in the sugar beet fields. And then the hand represents our people's struggle. You know, this is what this is all about is para mi familia, for my family, the struggle. It, the end of the field, it was way on the other side, being long. And then my grandpa's like, if you want, just stop there. You don't have to work no more. I'll do the rest. And I'm like, no, let me take a break. And I would take a break. But what I would do, I'd pick the pickles. Up to this day, I love them. And I would break them in half, and I would chew on them and eat at the same time. Verdad? And then pick and eat, yeah. (laughs) By listening to their stories, by having them be the authors of their own stories is a way that we're preserving history. We taught these beats all by hand, but I, I haven't been able to find out what we got paid for it. I want to make sure, one, we have representation here in Fort Collins. If you look around in Fort Collins, you don't see, we don't see what looks like us. Two, we're part of the history, the history that was forgotten. We were the forgotten people. And getting these oral histories, this is a way that we preserve our history. Some community voices of people who gathered in Fort Collins on July 8th to share stories about working in the sugar beet fields of northern Colorado. Thanks to Amanda Horvath and Peter Vaux. And you can watch their video and read more at rmpbs.org. You are listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. We turn now to Indigenous farmers growing Indigenous crops. On KRCL's Radioactive, 
co-hosts Lara Jones and Al Grossi, a.k.a. The Punk Rock Farmer, spoke with Indigenous farmer Alistair Lee Bitsoy. He joined them via Zoom from the Navajo Nation. I'm Alistair Lee Bitsoy. I am between the Navajo Nation and Salt Lake City and the rest of Utah. Um, and uh, I'm a dry land farmer on the Colorado Plateau on the New Mexico side of the Navajo Nation. So it's like a seven hour drive from Salt Lake City. Uh, if you want to zone into San Juan County, Utah, I'm probably like two hours away. Um, so still in the region, still considered Intermountain West. And I draw, I grow um, non-GMO Danette corn. So like white corn, uh, blue corn. Uh, I, I'm experimenting now with black corn. So Danette black corn. And then yellow corn. I, I have baby nieces and nephews now. So, or nieces. Um, yellow corn is considered like a, a female or matrilineal corn. And then the white corn is associated with male um, energies. And I also grow the Four Corners potato. I'm growing a little bit of squash. I was at the farm this morning and I saw the squash blossom. So I was like happy. And then I saw um, what green thread uh, coming out of nowhere, also known as Navajo tea or Diné tea or wild tea or Ute tea or Pueblo tea. Um, on the farm. So I'm like, okay, all my work in queer climate work or queer land conservation or what I think it is, is paying off for the last three years. So I'm in my fifth growing season, but my second growing season at my family's 11 acre dry land farm. Mm-hmm. And that's who I am. I'm here. And I'm calling the farm near the water farm farms because that is my first clan. I'm 1200. That means near the water people. And so where my farm is located, just below the Chiska Mountains on the Arizona, New Mexico state line, there was, um, there used to be, my clan uh, lives at the base of the mountains and relied on snow melt runoff and monsoon rains for years. And sadly, through the influence of capitalism and colonization, that disrupted and fractured our kinship ties. And so now the big farming area is parceled into different land, agricultural land use permits. And I'm ha- I have one of those permits now. And I'm my task between being in Salt Lake or the Wasatch Front and home, the Navajo Nation, I try to do, I try to ground myself during the summer. Plus, I love summer here at home in part because of the monsoon rains, you see the thunderstorms and everything. And then the smell and it's like the, I, I'm a summer baby too. So my birthday's coming up. So I just feel more alive during the summer at home. You, you uh, let's go back just a little bit. You said black corn. Um, tell me right. a little bit about the black corn. Yeah. So I grow um, corn, not so much for monetary purposes, but for cultural uses uh, we grow corn or I grow corn or the way I'm taught is it's for ceremony. It's for food. There's different food dishes you can make from corn. I also harvest corn for like the husks for tobacco usage as the, to roll tobacco with. As the paper, as the paper, the outside. As the paper. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So I use those knowing that I try, I'm trying to revive that in my family and like practice those those cultural 
um, ways that I that I know and the significance of corn, not just as a as a product or for economic opportunity, but for livelihood. Uh-huh. And yeah, there's different types of varieties of corn. Um, there's the neck corn, and then there's like obviously different indigenous corn, like Ute corn or white or pueblo or um, different varieties of corns that exist in. I, I, my family has black corn um, that is used culturally in different ways. And it's also part of our indigenous diets. There's different, as I go into this um, work, I don't know if it's called work or calling with growing my own food. Uh, I'm learning more of the different varieties of corn that exist, including the black corn. And just like it, it, it's significant. And I learned that it's used during a winter ceremony we have. And um, that's it's for it's considered a traditional food for that particular. Can you tell me of a couple other indigenous crops that you're growing that have been passed along from generations? Yeah, so I, I'm always for great. I'm always forever grateful for doing the work around the Bears Ears narrative. And so I, I, Laura knows that I, I came across the Four Corners potato and that's an indigenous and de- endemic food to the Four Corners region, which is obviously called the Four Corners potato. It grows into Escalante and Bears Ears, Mesa Verde in Colorado, Chaga, Mexico and where I live. And um, I know the University of Utah researchers are still doing research on the potato and I'm waiting for the monsoon. I was kind of getting nervous about like it not blooming, but I know just like me, they're waiting for that thirst of the rainwater mm-hmm. to before mm-hmm. they sprout. And so that's an indigenous food that is also used in that same winter ceremony I just cited. But also, um, my understanding is we, as the net people, we have 12 indigenous foods um, and they're wild, they're foraging techniques, or you know, they you can cultivate them like corn. And I grow squash too. So I try to make sure that my foods are indigenous and non-GMO in identity and try to cultivate that for the climate where I'm from. And speak about the climate where you're from, because dry farming techniques, what does that mean in practicality? You're, You're harvesting rainwater, you're trying to channel it, I'm guessing some rain barrels, but what does that mean in day to day farming for you? For me, it's every day because there's also not only what, hoping the rain comes, but also like, okay, there's threats. There's uh, a lot of, like, before I started planting, I had the threats of annoying prairie dogs. <laughs> Luckily, the water harvesting, like, drowned them. And, you know, like, I'm glad that, that their school of neighborhood or whatever, they moved. So that allowed me to, like, plant. Of course, there's, I saw a lot of, like, those... I think they're called those fuzzy worms or caterpillars. So that was interesting. Then I was reading a cultural piece. They're like, oh, if you see more of that fuzzy caterpillar, for instance, then it means it's going to be more windy. And it has been windy here. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, just listening to those indicators or even um, talking about the land dispute. I'm in a land, I was in a land dispute um, on the farm that I now own for my family, my clan, and just this earlier this week, the BIA uh, ruled again for the second time, like, 
like this fan, this farm is already active. It's been assigned to you, Alice there, which is like, I'm like over here, duh. But like, you know, I, I faced the lateral violence of like oppressors or those that don't like the idea that um, I'm growing food, not only just for myself, but little do they know, like later in the future, I would want to give them food too. So they don't know that I would provide them food, but they're, literally jealous that I'm leading this effort and I'm just listening to the teaching of my of my ancestors and you know just doing the work with bears ears and land conservation and what is indigenous land management and so like yes I can say that in theory but am I practicing it as a person as well and I feel like I am. Indigenous farmer Alistair Lee Bitsoy speaking with Lara Jones and Al Grossi also known as the punk rock farmer on KRCL's Radioactive. You can find the full show at krcl.org. Now, from food production to food waste, Kathy Stanley is the founder of Joy's Kitchen in Denver. She spoke with KGNU host Marcus Puskar as part of his series Candy Jail, which looks at the commercialization of the food system. Joy's Kitchen is a food rescue that does the work of saving and redistributing the food that is willfully overproduced. The main focus of utilizing those already existing resources is food for us. And it's not only food, but that is our main focus. And we do that by um, focusing on grocery rescue at a retail level for major groceries in the area, um, mostly in partnership with Food Bank of the Rockies grocery rescue program. So the food ends up at Joy's Kitchen every day. We start with zero and end with zero every day. So that's a really important thing to mention about our program and why it's sustainable in this crazy food system that's been created. Joy's Kitchen um, is assigned grocery stores. We go directly to the back door of grocery stores. There are existing basic frameworks from Food Bank of the Rockies in their grocery rescue program. We also, in able the grocery stores and the backdoor receivers to donate more and more fluidly in a better organized system that enables the donation program to pull out as much viable food as possible that was slated for waste in that grocery store. 90% of that food is non-compromised perfectly nutritionally dense, fresh food, perishable food product that needs to get into the hands and mouths of people to be processed instead of going to the landfill. If we didn't show up at these spaces, if other agencies and people approved to do this work, if we didn't show up, this food would be thrown in the trash. Actually, a very good example of that is that we were forced to close on July 4th due to backdoor receivers being gone, Food Bank of the Rockies being closed down, um, not enough volunteer power. I mean, that list goes on and on. But we were forced to close on the 4th of July when we don't show up on that day instead of saving that food for donations or for For the people, that food is definitely immediately thrown away for lack of storage or program infrastructure in the actual supermarkets. And there's no backup plan. I mean, this corporate complex system 
it's driven by capitalism, there isn't a backup plan. It's all in the backs of of these entities that have been created to funnel the waste through. Also, there's not a penalty or any subsequent any subsequent consequences of that behavior. If that behavior continues, it's just simply wasted. So a normal day for Joy's Kitchen is that my we're, we're very small staffed. We feed about 5,000 families in the Denver metro and Jefferson County areas a month. That's about fifteen to 20,000 people in those family units receiving food for a week or more. Um, we operate out of a 1,500-square-foot space in the bottom of a church. Because we're extremely efficient with our program and start with zero and end with zero every day, especially with the perishable food, we're able to extract that food in these beautifully maintained programs of relational impact that my team has. One staff driver goes out every day with a truckload of volunteers that want to be active in in that part of Joy's Kitchen. They start at 7.30 in the morning. They return with one truck and one trailer from the stores that we have en route for that day. We have um, 22 stores in total a week, and that is what is the bulk of feeding that many families. So that's kind of an idea of how much food is coming out of 22 neighborhood stores and we're not in those specific stores every day. We share those stores with other agencies to feed other areas of Denver. Every rescue averages between two and 6,000 pounds of return every morning at 11.30. At 11.30, the volunteers in the building space meet the truck. We have built a very fun community around this, a very intentional, very sweet community that relies on 420 volunteers a month to move this food before it goes to waste through this final process. So my people in the building meet my trucks at 1130. We unload trucks manually with that much weight, down some ramps. We gather, we listen to music, we sort that food in an hour and a half and then public distribution or boxes are made to go out to those who can't get to us. And we feed the people with no restrictions, no, quali- no, no restrictions, no qualifying measures. We take as little data as possible from the people receiving the food on that basic structure of mutual aid. This, this food that was slated for waste should not be governed any further and should be available to the people for the people. And we do that and we clean up our space and we go home. And that's every single day, six days a week. And that's been going on for 11 years. And at joyskitchen.org slash volunteer, you can see how and where to go. Yes. And help out yourself. Yeah, that would be great. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to see you. We'd love to build community with, with everybody listening. Also, um, I wanted to mention, we are not government-funded at all. We, have, we don't have any kind of granting from any larger entity. We are focused on raising the money to support Joy through the community, for the people, by the people kind of community. And each box of food that currently goes out to a family of four that weighs approximately 45 to 65 pounds, depending, costs 
about $10 of resources for us. Kathy Stanley, founder of Joy's Kitchen in Denver, speaking with Marcus Puskar of KGNU. That was part of his series called Candy Jail, which looks at the commercialization of the food system. You can find the full series at kgnu.org metro or find the podcast Candy Jail wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Aspen Public Radio, Rocky Mountain PBS and Kuvo, KRCL and KGNU for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.